This is the Early Childhood Research Podcast and you're listening to episode 23. Welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast, where we tell you how the latest research can help in your home and in your classroom. Welcome, I'm Liz, the host of the Early Childhood Research Podcast, and today we're talking about dyslexia and early intervention with Dr. Tim Conway. Dr. Conway works in the area of neuropsychology, which means understanding how our knowledge, our behaviours and emotions relate to our brain function. He's done extensive research on dyslexia since it runs in his family, as well as research on how to use early intervention to successfully help kids and adults overcome their learning challenges. You can find out more about Dr. Conway's work and his online tutoring programs by going to the morriscenter.com or nowprograms.net or find him on Facebook at Now Programs or the Morris Centre. Just so you know, this podcast has not been compensated in any way to promote Dr. Conway's programs, nor can I personally vouch for them. But if dyslexia is of personal or professional interest to you, his programs are a resource you might like to investigate. You can find the transcript, helpful posters showing signs to look for in young children, and links to Dr. Conway at lizesearlylearningspot.com. Just click on the podcast tab and look for episode 23. And now, here's the interview. Dr. Conway, welcome to the Early Childhood Research Podcast. Thank you so much, Liz. It's my pleasure. Today, we're talking about dyslexia. And so my first question is, what exactly is dyslexia? Dyslexia really follows under a large category called specific learning disorders. There's three types of specific learning disorders. There's a reading spelling one, there's a written expression one, and there's mathematics. And clearly, dyslexia is the one that falls under the reading and spelling learning disorders. Now, that diagnosis can be given to children, whether their reading problem is a reading accuracy problem, which means they misread words, they make mistakes, they substitute, add, repeat, shift, change words. It can be diagnosed because they have a reading fluency problem, where they're reading too slowly and they don't catch up with their peers and they're always far behind in their reading speed. And it can be diagnosed if there's just a reading comprehension problem, where they're reading along, but they're not understanding what they're reading. And of course, there could be any combination of those three altogether. And that diagnosis of a specific learning disorder is identical or synonymous with the term dyslexia. By etymology, dyslexia just means dys means trouble, lex means words. It's trouble with words, but our most common focus is on the reading problems of it. What are the misconceptions of what dyslexia is? Gosh, probably the most common one, the ones that the uh, newspapers and cartoonists love to play with, which is they make children or adults with dyslexia see words backwards. Right. And they reverse words, they reverse letters. And, and they used to think this might be possible to be one of the causes of what was happening um, because kids would look at the word pot and they might say top. Or they'd look at was and they'd say saw. And they thought, oh, they're seeing the words backwards. But then what no one really asked back then was, yeah, but how come they don't look at the word the and say et? Right. Because if they saw words backwards, they should read all the words backwards, not just the ones that conveniently can be flipped back and forth. And regardless of whether you go right, left, or left, right, it's an identical. It's, they're both real words. So that's been disproven to show, no, they actually don't see words backwards. They do have some directional difficulties. They might have trouble with left hand and right hand. They might have trouble with remembering which way do we go when we read on a book. Do I go to left to right or right to left? That can be other co-occurring issues, and that kind of confounds the 
misunderstandings of it. Right. But the number one myth is it's a visual processing problem and they see things backwards or even they think that words move. That can be a secondary symptom to the stress of the reading when they're struggling. The primary piece is they just purely have trouble sounding out words and they're not very accurate in their reading. It affects one out of five children, so worldwide. I find that really astonishing. Is it on a spectrum so that some kids are more obviously dyslexic and others only have a touch of it? Yes. With the brain, you're always talking about a continuum, mild, moderate, or severe. And so if you include all variations of it from mild to moderate to severe, that's where you get the higher percentage ratings of like one out of five kids. If you're looking at just the severely ones, you're going to look more like about um, 5%. So it's going to be a little bit lower ranking than the, than the 20%. So, in other words, we're missing a lot of kids that are on the lower end of the spectrum, I suppose. Yeah, true. They get pushed on or they get the, the parents are told, let's wait and see, maybe they'll catch up. Or, or they're given myths like, well, you know, boys read later than girls, things that we thought were true until people really tested and found out, no, actually, those aren't true. Those are just myths. And we used to think it was like four boys for every girl would have dyslexia. So like a four to one ratio. And then they actually did a large-scale study and found, no, it's actually like about 1.2 or 1.3 boys for every girl that has dyslexia. The difference was the boys would act up and get in trouble when they weren't reading because they couldn't read well, so they'd be upset and they'd act out. And girls would tend to withdraw and not want to be noticed and not want to, not want to be identified and not want to be seen as different. And so the girls just weren't getting identified, whereas the boys were getting identified because they were causing behavior problems in class and being sent to the office and then found to not be able to read well. It's a bit like that with ADHD as well. Yeah, and that was even harder because we don't have, you know, we've got great standardized measures for predicting reading problems. We can predict it as young as age four and five. We, we can even predict it based on family genetics and say, you know, look, if there's family history, you're automatically high risk if you have a, a father or a mother or a brother or an uncle or a grandparent who had reading problems, you're a high risk. But we don't have that kind of um, easily quantifiable, easily measured, easily predicted kind of data that goes along with ADHD. And it gets confounded by poor parenting or other problem behaviors that can be um, can cause and, and look have symptoms that look like ADHD, but really are secondary to some other problem. Often dyslexia doesn't seem to be diagnosed until children are in early or even later primary school. But you are a great proponent of early intervention, which means parents and teachers of very young children need to be able to spot the warning signs. At what age can we start recognising that one of our children might be at risk? And what exactly are we looking for? Yeah, Liz, those are great questions because in any aspect of a diagnosis or a difficulty, whether it's medical or educational, early intervention always gives better outcomes. There's going to be less struggle. There's going to be less difficulty. It's going to have less of a negative impact on the child. So in decades ago, we didn't really know what the number one predictors were. We didn't really know what was causing dyslexia. And so there's lots of guessing. Many times schools would take the wait and see approach. Well, maybe this child's just going to catch up later, you know, or maybe, you know, they're making progress. And so let's just, let's just wait and see. So wait and see had been one of the most common misapplied terms or misapplied approaches to dyslexia. Um, because now today we have very large, very reliable, very accurate predictive studies that say if at age four and five you struggle with holding onto a word and being able to manipulate its sounds, and this is not a visual task, it's not a reading task, it's actually a speech processing task or a speech perception task. 
and then you're going to struggle to learn how to read. And so how the researchers did that was they gave children a word verbally. They'd say cat, and they would ask the child, say cat back to me. And then they'd tell the child, now say cat, but don't say the k sound. Well, to do that task, you have to hold the word in auditory memory. You have to find where the k sound is. You have to take the k sound away. You have to figure out how to put those two sounds back together that are left and say the word at back to the researcher. Kids who have what is called strong phonological awareness, and that just means your awareness of the speech sounds and words that you heard. Kids who can hold on to them and manipulate them, they've been shown to become really strong, accurate, fluent readers. Kids who are poor holding on to these sounds, being able to manipulate them, being able to judge different changes, they've been shown to be kids who are going to become more likely to struggle to learn to read and certainly are not going to be reading at their true potential or their true IQ. That's interesting because when you talk about myths of dyslexia, we don't really know that it's going to manifest until we realise they have trouble reading. So you're saying it's not to do with that. It's before they get to reading and writing. Absolutely. And here's a way to think about it. The brain is very systematic and very organized in how it develops skills. So when I ask parents, okay, which skill did you, did you read? Did you learn first? Did you read and spell first or did you speak first? They're all like, well, well of course we spoke first. Like, exactly. So speaking is the earliest developing form of language. You speak and you listen and you speak and you listen. And then later we bring in alphabet letters, which one question I think really helps parents understand the complexity of this reading or spelling task is I'll ask parents, think about the letter K. Why does a K say K? How come a K doesn't say J? Or how come a K doesn't say A? Or how come a K doesn't say U? Why does a K make the sound it makes? What's the logic behind the shape of alphabet letters? And parents look at me dumbfounded like, I didn't learn that at university. And, and <laughs> then I have to explain to them, sorry, it's a trick question. There is no logic. These are just purely abstract letters. They're abstract shapes. There's no reason why the letters have the shapes they have. And we learned decades ago from a developmental psychologist named Piaget that children learn from concrete sensory experiences first, and they develop abstract thinking skills later on. So letters are an abstract concept. They're harder to learn. They're more difficult to learn, and they're not going to be as easily learned especially if we don't have this strong phonological awareness or phonological processing skills. Right. Children with dyslexia can be dealing with other challenges, such as ADHD, behaviour problems and sensory motor issues. For those young children, are we more likely to focus on their behaviour and perhaps miss or consider not as important the difficulty that they're having with words? How can we look at a child and ensure that we're seeing that child in their entirety? Understanding how behavior can be secondary to a difficulty helps us pinpoint what's the primary difficulty. Is it problem behaviors first led to poor attendance in school or poor engagement in school and that's why they're reading because they just hadn't gotten enough educational experience in reading? Or is it the reading problems led to frustrations which led to the problem behaviors? And so if we improve the reading problems, then we might improve the actual problem behaviors. So we always want to look at the child, look at the standardized testing, look at the home environment, look at the school environment, understand the whole picture of what makes up a child's ability to, to function and perform academically in school. Then we have the best chance of figuring out what are the primary issues and what are secondary issues. But your question also mentioned sensory motor issues. And this goes back to that phonological awareness again, which is, okay, so many people initially thought too that phonological awareness was just acoustic, it's just hearing sounds until somebody studied it. And when they studied it, what we found was 
Liz, babies as young as six months of age are staring at your mouth. They're watching you move. They're watching how your tongue's working. And they're using their visual input, so visual sensory and acoustic sensory, hearing and vision together to begin to build these early phonological processing skills. But that's not enough to help them really fully build that phonological system. So if you think of it this way, if I say Acoustically, those sound almost the same to the ear, and when you can't see the speaker's face, you're really, your ear's gonna have a harder time figuring out, was that the same sound or two different sounds? But if your eyes come in, you can see the person's mouth, you'd see when they say F, the top teeth are biting the bottom lip, like the letter F, making an F sound. When they say F, the, the tongue is sticking out between the teeth, and it's the teeth are biting down on the tongue, and the air's coming out, and that's a TH sound. So then the eyes can actually help the ear categorize the sounds. But then here's a problem with that. Visual and acoustics are not enough sensory input to figure out all sounds because the child, the adult, the teenager, they can't see their own mouth. So how can they tell if they're making or a f because they can't use vision? So then we have a third sensory system that comes into play, which is touch movement in the mouth. Scientifically, we call it tactile kinesthetic. So it's the touching and the moving. Can you feel your teeth make the shape or feel your top teeth bite down on your bottom lip and feel that you have your mouth in the proper shape to make the F sound? Then you know you've got that shape. And then your brain's using three sensory inputs, vision, hearing, and touch movement of the mouth. Now, some people say, well, how can the child not know what their mouth is doing or not know how it moves? Well, think of it this way. If you walk into the lunchroom of five-year-olds, you'll see some five-year-olds who are wearing half their lunch on their face. There's ketchup spit all over their face. You know, there's jello shoved up their nose. And the child had no idea that they have all this food on their face. So that tells you right there, that neurological soft sign, we call it, to say this child has decreased sensory awareness on their mouth because they're not feeling this mess they have all over their face. Now, in, in large congregations, groups, when I speak, some wives will say, well, my husband still does that today. He still has food in his face and doesn't know. Well, just because you got older doesn't guarantee the brain actually built these skills either. Age doesn't really re-improve the wiring of the brain. It's experiential. So your question about are there potentially, you know, attention issues and or potential sensory motor issues is very pertinent because many kids who have dyslexia will have sensory motor processing difficulties as well because the part of the brain that controls sensory feedback around the mouth and sensory around the fingers is just above the part of the brain that does our phonological processing. So those two areas of the brain are literally neighbors right close by. So if there's problems in phonological awareness, there's a high likelihood they're gonna have more trouble holding onto a pencil and not pushing too hard and breaking a lead or have trouble forming their letters because that's that finger control and that part of the brain is just neighbor to the part of the brain that does the phonological awareness. That's really interesting. So I assume that means kids with dyslexia, it's not just all one cause. Like some kids have, are affected in different ways by it. So I assume that means that when we're trying to help kids with dyslexia, there is no one fixed solution? Well, it, it depends how you want to characterize that because we've done large-scale studies to say, <clears throat> like one study that my group did, we screened 1,500 five-year-olds. We screened which kids in that group of 1,500 five-year-olds could say catch without the k sound, or say, say flame without the ol, or say baseball without saying base, and just say ball. And we picked out the kids who were in the bottom 10% of that group. So we picked out 160 kids who are the worst at those skills and most likely to become dyslexic. And by that, I mean, they, of course, dyslexia, let me clarify, it's genetic, it runs in families. So it's not like we're trying to figure out if they have the gene or not. Right. They've got it. 
We're trying to see, yeah, but is it a more severe impairment like we talked about before, or is it a more mild or moderate impairment? And so by understanding that, then we know, okay, so who's highest risk? Because they've got the gene and it's starting to show up in their behaviors and their brain struggling with that phonological skill. So from those 1,500 kids down to the 160 kids, we randomly assigned um, kids to four groups. So you got 40 kids in group one, 40 in group two, 40 in group three, 40 in group four. And then there's four different interventions. One group of 40 kids got no help for two and a half grade levels. And we just followed them to see how they progressed over time. One group got equal time and attention, 20 minutes a day, four days a week for two and a half grades, right. just doing whatever method their teacher was using for literacy instruction. But now they got a little bit extra one-on-one because maybe the method didn't matter. Maybe what mattered is that you're going to get a little extra one-on-one time, and that's going to help the brain build these skills. The third group got an explicit phonics program because we're, lots of research says phonics is important. It's a part of reading. Because let's be frank, English, horrible language, just horrible. So inconsistent, so many variations, very few consistent rules. It could drive you crazy how sometimes E at the end of the word says nothing. Sometimes there isn't the E at the end of the word. Sometimes, you know, there's all these inconsistencies that make the language very difficult to learn. But phonics is part of it. So those kids got a real explicit phonics program, 20 minutes a day, four days a week, one-on-one for two and a half grades. And then the fourth group got a neurodevelopmental approach which says, we know that speech processing develops before letters and reading. Let's go back and focus on those sensory inputs of what does sounds look like with the eye, what do you hear for sounds, what do you feel with your mouth for the sounds, and help build that sensory basis, the speech processing first, and then later go to the literacy with the letters and whatnot. And when we do studies like that, that study showed that if the kids got no treatment or extra one-on-one help or phonics, 25 to 40% of them did not pass kindergarten or first grade. They were held back. Right. But if those same skill level kids got the 20 minutes a day, 40s a week of the neurodevelopmental, building those sensory processing from the ground up, addressing speech processing first, and then into literacy, gosh, Liz, we had 91% of the kids who passed kindergarten and first grade. It wasn't a 25 to 40% that were held back. It was only nine. So it was a huge difference. Now, in studies like that, you're also looking at the dosage of what you're doing, okay? because maybe that one method would be even more successful if they actually had gotten it five days a week instead of four, or if it had been 30 minutes a day instead of 20. Those are the questions we don't know because the study didn't ask those questions. So when people say no one method helps all kids, well, prevention-wise, that's really not true. Prevention-wise, we have solid data that says certain approaches, like this neurodevelopmental approach, are far more successful than a phonics approach, than a equal extra time approach, or then certainly than a do nothing and wait and see. If we're going back to early intervention, focusing on spoken language is something critical we can do with young children because Mm -hmm. they're all learning to speak and to make sounds. They're not up to reading and writing. Therefore, it makes sense that if that's the early intervention we can do, that's going to have a really positive effect. Absolutely. And that's why they're always advocating for you know, reading to kids at young ages, discussing things with them, talking with them, engaging them in their world. But there's also just equal importance on the sensory motor system. <clears throat> it's not just the literacy skills or the language skills need to develop. We need the language skills to develop along with the sensory motor skills, along with the emotional awareness of a mood and feelings and, you know, how that might feel to somebody else. So all those things, we want them to grow and develop together. I guess a good way to explain it is right now I'm in the country of Trinidad and Tobago. Here they've gotten to the focus now of actually teaching the written alphabet around age two and three. 
In the States, we typically are not teaching the written alphabet to about the age of four and five. Right. In the Netherlands, they're not teaching it to about the age of seven. Yeah. We're like, well, that's a whopping difference. It's, that's like five years difference, two or seven. And yet, when we look at the studies of adults' literacy, adults in the Netherlands are just as literate as adults from the U.S., as adults from Trinidad and Tobago. So in some ways, early instruction is not always developmentally appropriate. So you're trying to find what's the developmentally appropriate early instruction. Now, some folks have started to focus on that there's word meanings, and so there's morphology of words, and words have you know small parts like un changes the meaning of a word, re will change the meaning of a word like redo or return. And they now have gotten focused on teaching kids the meaning of, of chunks of words as if that's the first system to develop and that's what's gonna improve their literacy. But when you look at language from a developmental cognitive model, you find, no, actually we speak and perceive sounds first. It's phonology that comes on board first. That meaning system, that morphology system, that comes on board later. So all the research right now says do the phonological interventions first. Certainly morphology training later on can be helpful, but it's not the initial first step of training. When we look at brain scans, we can see that dyslexic children are not using those specific parts of their brains as efficiently as non-dyslexics. So as educators, is it our job to expose our children to activities that specifically stimulate those areas? If so, what kinds of activities, including play, should we be focusing on? And if not, I ask the same question, what kinds of activities should we be sure to incorporate into our preschool day or our kinder day or our homeschool day? Yeah, that's another really popular piece of science. In fact, I'm an fMRI brain imaging scientist myself, and I've done fMRI brain imaging studies, published those studies. And... In that field, we call fMRI or brain scans the sexy science because it sells really well. Oh, it, it, right. it does really well in publications. People love the colorful pictures and, right. and it's easy to understand. Oh, look, this part's working, that part's not. But what most people don't know about brain imaging is it's a very young science. It's not really well standardized, meaning different labs, even within one university, <clears throat> three different brain imaging labs might actually measure and um, analyze and collect the data in different ways. Oh, that's interesting. It's not like saying, you know, a standardized test of vision. Pretty much any doctor anywhere is going to use the same vision chart, measure it the same way. That doesn't exist in the brain sciences or brain scans. So for one thing, we have to keep in mind, this is a young science. In the States, brain imaging is only approved for one clinical purpose. And that clinical purpose is figuring out if a person has more of the left side of their brain controlling speech, reading, and spelling, or more of the right side of the brain because the doctor needs to go in and take away part of the brain tissue because they have seizures that can't be stopped with medication. Right. They want to be sure that when they take away part of the brain tissue, it's not also going to severely damage their language skills. So that's really the only clinically approved use of brain imaging. Right. The rest is purely um, exploratory, purely just kind of trying to look and figure things out. So mm -hmm. keeping that in mind... The imaging studies show that children have decreased activity in certain parts of the brain, increased activity in other parts of the brain. But the most important finding from imaging research with dyslexia is, but after those children have been through effective phonological awareness training, their brain activity pattern looks identical to a child who does not have reading problems. Mm. There was one very popular paper that came out um, from a group of researchers in Houston, and they took a very controversial title. They called it, and sometimes researchers do this because they like free PR. So they called the study Normalization of Brain Activity in Children with Dyslexia. 
And that word normalization really sets people off sometimes because it's, right. you're, you're assuming the others are abnormal. No yeah. one likes that characterization. But right. what they're trying to point out is, look, once these kids had effective phonological awareness training that went back to the speech processing first and built up to literacy second, it didn't go straight to letters. Most people don't understand that when you say phonological awareness, there could be a hundred different ways you do phonological awareness training. So we're not always using that word to mean the same thing. But when these kids got phonological awareness training, they went from the speech processing and then into literacy, they had brain activity patterns and reading skills that were identical to kids their own age who didn't have reading problems. So we showed that that brain activity difference is not essentially a hardwired difference. They weren't born with an inability to use the brain properly. It was more of an efficiency. Their brain was less efficient in using the typical areas. So other areas of the brain were trying to help out. So in general, you'd say, when you look at these brain scans, you can see a child with dyslexia, the left side is less active and the right side's more active. <clears throat> and after intervention, you'd say, okay, you see the reverse. Now they have more activity on the left side and less activity on the right side. And that's the same pattern of activity as a child who's a good reader. Right. The key thing that you mentioned in your question too is experience. What are the activities or experience? Because the brain's wiring is under a very key principle called experience-based plasticity. That means new wiring doesn't form unless you give the brain the right experiences, the right activities. And so that's why we know lots of reading to kids is very important. Lots of early word play, teaching your kid pig Latin, as silly as that sounds, trying to teach a kid how to say those words and move them around and, right. and, and say, you know, at way, R-A, U-Y-E, U-Y-E, day. And they're like, what? <laughs> but just play with it because that makes them do phonological activities, phonological activities, nursery rhymes. Um, songs that go along with nursery rhymes as well, um, rhyming books like Dr. Mm. Seuss books. These are all books that are exploring and exposing the sound structures of our language and giving kids more and more experience with it. And then that gives us a greater chance to that wiring that might have been inefficient at birth due to the genetics is going to get enough practice, enough experience that it will wire itself more efficiently that the child then won't struggle and won't fall behind and won't get diagnosed with dyslexia. Mm. And I'm assuming that if we're doing lots of word play and we're doing that in a way that's really fun and enjoyable for the child, that that gives a much better long-term outlook? Absolutely, because engagement, motivation, attention, they all come hand in hand. And one way to think about that is from a, a cognitive brain processing perspective, we say attention precedes thinking. Right. If you're not attending to what sir is saying at the front of the class and the instruction you're attending to or focusing on what you see some kid next to you doing your brain's thinking about what the kid's doing not thinking about what the instructor's saying right. and so you're going to learn about the kid next to you you're not going to learn the content of the day so that attention piece really drives the actual rewiring of the brain too because where you're attending is where the brain's getting the activity and where that processing is going to be building which then goes back down to adhd it's why attention issues are such a critical factor for kids mm. is because Say, for example, most kids will have a, a reading class once a day, five days a week. Maybe it's a 60-minute class. If one child tunes out for 10 minutes of every class, Monday, mm. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that child's basically lost about an hour of instruction for that week. Mm. And if they're going to be in school for you know 30 weeks or 40 weeks, then that's going to be 30 or 40 hours of instruction. They've gotten less than the other kids in their group just because of their focus issues. And I, and I say focus very explicitly because ADHD is really a poorly named disorder. These kids don't have attention problems. They have lots of attention. The problem is where do they focus it? Where, <laughs> where do they, they put it? 
Because <laughs> right. parents will tell you, my kid can't have ADHD. He plays those video games yes. for four hours if I don't <laughs> stop him. So they have plenty of attention. The challenge is can they keep it where it's supposed to be as opposed to where it's more engaging or more fun or more interesting to keep it? In education, there's been a lot of issues raised about trying to force kids to learn too early. What used to be grade one is now kindergarten. And so if it's not done in a fun way, if it's putting pressure on the teacher and on the child, I'm assuming that when it comes to the wiring of the brain, that's actually not going to be as effective as it should be. Absolutely. And, and that's why some of the reading programs that have been written over the years are downright painful for the child right. and painful yeah. for the teacher because they're dry scripted. Teacher says this, child's supposed to say that. Teacher says this, child's supposed to say that. It's very dry. It's not engaging. It's not exploratory. It's not in, uh, you know, motivating in learning and discovery. It's just rote memorization, rote memorization, rote memorization. And that is just painful. And so if we don't get the motivation to get the engagement, you, what, what also may be a problem is you may not build the independence in the skill either. That maybe the child's now dependent on the teacher to always ask these certain questions or ask these certain ideas because the child hasn't been taught how to figure it out themselves. It's, it's the old biblical parable of, are you giving them a fish or teaching them how to fish? Mm. Well, true literacy instruction should be teaching them how to fish, teaching them how to sound out words, teach them how to memorize the words, teach them how to figure out the meaning from the pictures to the story. All of these are critical skills that should be building together. And that gives us the best well-rounded educational piece and gives the child the best chance to be able to independently build these skills and will continue to do these activities when they're not in the class. So that when they're driving down the road with mom and dad, yeah. they're trying to read street signs or when they're in the restaurant, they're trying to read the menu mm. and they're trying to engage this activity more and more because again that's back to that experience-based plasticity if you do it more per day you're giving the brain a chance to build wiring more efficiently more quickly because the brain's getting more practice mm. an, an analogy i use with parents again is they'll say okay let's say that mom's going to learn german and she's going to get a free german lesson every monday for three hours but dad's going to learn german but dad we're going to send him away to a german family to live with them for eight weeks. Oh, and by the way, they speak no English and he's going to come back in eight weeks. Now, what if we gave mom a year's head start and, and then we sent dad away for eight weeks? Who do you think is going to have better German? Well, odds are it's probably going to be dad because of the intensity, mm. the explicitness, and the, just the total immersion in that learning experience. The brain built that wiring at a higher level with more efficiency and more automaticity. Those are the kind of the key elements of how the brain builds new skills that we're then gonna to get to a point where the child's wiring is automatic and it's more independent and it doesn't need the teacher there helping them along. Right. And then they help them generalize it from the teaching classroom to their other life classrooms, like to math class, to history class, to science class, so that they're using these skills across all the classes because then they're most likely to continue to use this skill on their own without much direct instruction or guidance because we've built a higher degree of independence. Right, because it's not just about what's happening immediately with the child, but the long-term effect. Exactly. You're trying to build life's learning skills they can use all throughout life and keep getting stronger and stronger. In your experience, what's the best approach for an educator to take when wanting to let a parent know that their child is potentially at risk? Uh, because while we're keen on early intervention, it's a very touchy subject and many people do want to take that wait-and-see approach. And going on from there, what kind of advice or suggestions or recommendations should we be making? 
Yeah, it's interesting because there is, um, like in, in Australia and the UK, there's a big push for what they call the phonics check. We want to get kids screened early. And, and early screening is a great idea. Um, and, and if we're doing it with everyone, then we're really not trying to label anyone. Mm. We're trying to actually get identified, identified as soon as possible who might be struggling to get them intervention before they would get labeled, mm. before they have fallen so far behind they meet that diagnostic criteria of a learning disability. So most of the time, if it's a standard part of a, a curriculum in an educational system, then it's not such a big deal. The parents want to know early. In fact, yes. the most complaint get from a parent is, I knew, I knew, I knew, and they wouldn't listen to me. Right. And whether they teacher or that's the pediatrician or, you know, someone else who's involved in the child's health and well-being, the parent is frustrated because they had that gut sense mm. or just that experiential sense of this child is number three in my family. And number one and two didn't struggle like that. Mm. Now, sure, we're not supposed to compare kids too much, but some things are okay to compare. Like, are they building the reading skills? Mm. You know, are they learning to speak? Are they able to ride their bike? We want to see those developmental milestones happening at appropriate times. So it really comes back to the culture of the educational system. If the culture is we want to help promote and, and um, reinforce kids' skills as well as possible, then the early screening is not seen as a negative thing. Mm. If the culture really is, look, I don't know anything about dyslexia. It's not my area. I'm not trained in that, which is what many teachers, unfortunately, have the experience of being put in the position of. And that's very frankly, we're just going to lay it right out there and say that's the fault of the educational systems for teachers. Mm. That's the fault of the colleges of education, not making sure all teachers really understand how language skills develop, how the brain develops these skills, because it's critical for all teachers to know how the brain works because essentially what they're trying to do in school is change the brain's wiring and build new content knowledge. Right. Well, if you don't know how the brain works, you're going to be at a disadvantage of how to best do instruction. Mm. So when the culture there is different and the culture is, you know, it's not my job, that's special ed or that's someone else, that does give family stigma and that does make it harder to hear that my child is struggling in some way and you don't know what to do about it. And because the parents are like, well, what am I supposed to do about yeah. it? You're the teacher, yeah. professional. So it can be really frustrating and really difficult. But if we do a better job of educating the educators and they get more of this brain research knowledge in part of their university system, then it'll be much easier for them to understand what's happening and much easier for a system to take a more proactive approach and make sure that we're working efficiently to effectively intervene before the skills become so far behind that they would meet a diagnostic criteria. For a lot of very young children, children who are, say, three or four and they're in preschool, so they're not even having to start reading yet. If I'm teaching, say, a three-, four-year-old class and I recognise issues, they can't rhyme or things like that, before they're even in formal schooling, how do you approach parents when they're that young? Is that alarmist? No, I think there's, there's rarely going to be any harm by early intervening and giving the kid extra practice, mm. there's gonna be more harm by not doing anything and waiting to see if the skill falls further behind. Mm. It's kind of like saying if you have a cut and you're not, you don't, you're not sure it's infected, it's looking a little red and swollen, mm. well, why not just go ahead and put some antibiotic on it, the ointment, to make sure it doesn't become worse, as opposed to wait and see if it starts to ooze. Because by then you've, you've let it become worse, there's no benefit to that. So if we see a child starting to struggle, and more importantly, if we require educational systems to use what we call evidence-based methods, mm. there's, there's two characteristics of this, evidence-based and highly effective. Evidence-based means the methodology has been tested, proven, and shown to be effective, 
but when you compare three different methods, it all had studies, all had research, all shown to be effective. One might be more effective than the others. Mm. So we want to use the most highly effective that's also evidence-based because right now there's a, a recent article by a professor in the graduate school of education at, at an Ivy League college. And this professor raised the question and says, do we need a FDA, which in the U.S. is our you know, government body that approves medications. Right. So the physicians right. can't use a medication unless it's gone through this review process. It's stringent. It's very critical of making sure we don't give medications that are going to harm people. They've really been vetted to make sure they're going to be effective and they do what they say they're going to do. Mm. But we have nothing like that for education. Mm. Right now, education is still left to say every child learns differently. Every child has different learning styles. That's been disproven. That's not true. They might have strengths or weaknesses, but every child needs all their styles to be as strong as possible. Every child is going to do better if they have strong visual learning skills, strong auditory learning skills, strong tactile learning skills. If you can give them strengths in all of those areas, which the brain can do, then we give the child the greatest chance for long-term success in learning. As opposed to saying, well, gee, Johnny's better with visual learning, Susie's better with auditory learning. Mm. So let's teach auditory to Susie and visual to Johnny. Well, that's a horrible idea because then Johnny's going to become more impaired in auditory because you're giving him no practice. Right. He's getting no experience with it. Susie's going to become more impaired in visual compared to her classmates because they're going to be getting their visual system stronger and stronger. And because we stopped giving her visual instruction and focused on auditory, she's going to fall further and further behind. That's not helpful to her. That doesn't help her be ready to compete in the typical world at the college level or at the mm. business level or at the, you know university level, wherever she goes and tries to progress. The more strengths each child can have, the better they can adapt to their environment, to the learning challenges they're faced with, or to whatever occupation they choose to progress into as well. So our goal should be look at all the skills we want the child to have, but really push the schools to only buy programs that are evidence-based. Wow. Now, the publishers don't really want us to do that. Of course. The publishers make millions of dollars because they sell schools basically the same method with a new look, a new package, mm. a few new words, a different person, some different PhD's name on it. About every three to five years, they can sell the schools a whole new curriculum. Mm. And so it's, a, it's an endless money-making machine for the publishers. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean the publishers are malicious and are purposely trying to sell bad stuff. It just means if we made publishers adhere to the same science that we make drug companies adhere to and prove that what they're selling works, then schools will have a much better chance of making purchases that give us an educational methodology mm. that's more likely to have a much higher success rate for a larger number of kids. That's a really good idea. <laughs> we should push for that. <laughs> it's what we call a paradigm shift. That would be a yes. huge paradigm shift in education to recognize, one, that scientific method actually has something to do with education and could be helpful. And two, for educational systems, whether it's a school or a district or a state, you know, or a country, to say, we're not buying stuff from you unless you have evidence that's independent, peer-reviewed science. And it not only has to be published, but it has to be published and shown to be highly effective. Yeah. Because then we have the best chance of buying the programs that give our kids the best chance for early growth and skills and less likelihood to fall behind. Mm. And I think, too, you're more likely to help lower-income children. If it's in the schools, then all children can have access. Exactly. I feel like often in education, if you are from a wealthier family, they can go and search and find more and more and more options, but that's not an option for a low-income family. Exactly. They're just going to get whatever the school has. Mm. And that can put the, the child at a disadvantage because they may not be getting the most effective, most efficient learning approach. And many of those kids, too, who live in poverty, 
or have poor family life or you know don't have a stable home environment they're dealing with other stressors as well that work against education of new, you know poor nutrition or emotional trauma or even just poor sleep hygiene or potential abuse all those things then also affect a child's learning and their ability to actually benefit from the instructional environment of the school and, you know one of the approaches that one of my companies takes is we built the program we did all this research on it we first studied the good readers who don't struggle, how do they do it? What did their brain build? What skills came on board when? How did it build these phonological skills? And how did that build these reading skills? Then we designed a treatment method that replicates that, that we then give to a classroom. And if we gave it to a whole classroom, remarkably, you could be doing prevention and enrichment simultaneously. Because the kids who are not at risk, because we're giving them the practice we know their brain's already going to need, those kids are just going to get stronger. And their okay skills are going to maybe become great skills. The kids who are at risk, who are in the lower 10% of the class, we know they desperately need this instruction. Well, we're already giving it, and we're giving it early on in class. That's going to help them be getting an in, in early intervention before they fall behind. So in some of these situations, we're not saying do screening to pull kids out. Mm. We're saying they'll really have empirically-based, highly effective methods. Then we can be giving it to the whole class yeah. and doing simultaneous enrichment mm. and early intervention at the same time. Sure, a few kids still might need to be pulled out and they still might need to get more explicit instruction because they're just too far behind, but it gives us a greater chance that that will be fewer of the children because we're getting an earlier start with an evidence-based and highly effective program. Early educators are always promoting the idea of reading to kids from a very young age and there are many different approaches we can take during that reading time. If we're concerned that a child is showing red flags such as mispronunciation or the trouble with rhyming or not being able to tell a story in chronological order, do you have some tips for us for reading time since that's an everyday activity for us? Should we choose specific types of books? Should we instigate specific types of conversations while reading? Uh, should we talk about words? What kind of response should we be encouraging from our child, if any? Yeah, this is going to sound odd, but our number one recommendation is make sure that when you're saying the word to the child that they're looking at your mouth. Oh. Make sure the child's looking at your mouth. Because if you're saying, look, Johnny, a ball, and Johnny says, bah, you say, no, it's a ball, he says, bah. Right. Well, you could try shouting it louder to his ear. Maybe he didn't hear what you said. But research tells us, no, it probably wasn't a hearing problem. He just wasn't perceiving all the sounds you were making. Mm. So if you actually let him see your mouth, how your tongue lifts up at the end when you say ball, and that L sound comes out, then he's like, oh, and then he's more likely to get his tongue to lift up and then he's gonna be producing the proper sounds. Mm. Because when I mentioned earlier about how we know that children by six months of age start looking at the mom and dad's mouth mm -hmm. to learn the sounds of their language, that's not all kids, that's only about 7%. So 20 to 30% actually are not looking at mom and dad's mouth. Okay. And so we think actually not getting all the sensory systems building at an early age and they're just trying to learn language only by acoustics. And that's not going to be as efficient. Mm. And it's a harder time for the brain to tell sounds apart. Because say, for example, like a B and a D, well, B and D acoustically sound a lot alike. Mm. They're not that difference. But physically in watching the mouth, yep. when you say B, your lips come together and pop. Right. When you say D, your lips stay apart, your tongue lifts up and hits the top of the mouth and comes back down. So there's a huge difference in the visual piece. And in the tactile kinesthetic, when you are aware of how your mouth is moving, how it feels in your mouth is also hugely different as well. But if we don't help bring that awareness to the child, they're not going to be as likely to perceive that sensory input. 
and perception precedes cognition. So they don't perceive it. The brain's not going to be building that network of the, okay, so buh makes my lips pop and, and my lips come together. And it sounds like this and it mm. looks like this. I can see your lips pop. I encourage parents to go online and Google a thing called the McGurk effect. It's M-C-G-U-R-K, McGurk. He was a famous psychologist who did a crazy study. He did this study where he took a person's face and they're moving their mouth and just saying a few sounds. Like maybe they're saying laga, laga, and <clears throat> they're not sure what their mouth is saying. But then they played an audio track and the audio track is actually does not match how their mouth is moving. Right. So in the, the most famous version of that, the mouth is looking like it's saying a D sound or a G sound, like a D or a G. Mm. But the acoustic they played is the letter B sound, B. Mm. And so if the ear is hearing B the whole time, but whenever the person looks at the person's mouth on the screen and they see the lips don't come together, they will tell you that person's saying D or G. Right. And then if you ask to look away, they'll say, oh, no, wait. No, they're actually saying B. So what we learn from that McGurk effect is visual override acoustic almost every time. So what you see somebody's mouth do will override what you actually hear coming out of their mouth. Mm. But that's only for about 70% of kids. 20 to 30% aren't building that visual acoustic wiring together very efficiently. Mm. We really do want you to see how our mouth moves. Mm. It's part of how speech works. And so the rhyming also has auditory acoustic piece of that. The pronunciation, if you slow down the mouth movements and show them how to move the mouth, when kids mispronounce, it means their mouth is moving in a different way than yours did. Mm. That's where the mispronunciation came from, is they've made a different movement of the mouth. And the more overt you can make it, the more clear you can make it, the better the kid can start to learn how to wire what I see, what I hear, what I feel my mouth doing to begin to wire and come together. Um, in terms of specific types of books, the comment you made earlier really was key, which is books that they're engaged in, books that they find fascinating, right. books that they love the content with. You know, and there's some great early books that are touchy, feely, zipper books, mm. you know, fabric books, texture books. So we get more sensory motor things going on board as well. And then uh, other places like in the Netherlands or even some parts of the UK, they do great exploratory. They read a book and then they go outside and explore what they just read about. Right. And so it's a very engaged experiential lesson. It's experiential in multiple domains of the brain and how it works together. Really just getting the child engaged in language engaged in literacy, engaged in learning, and engaged in these key sensory motor features of the phonological system are really some of our most important things to do early and do it frequently. I really like your tip about the mouth moving because when we're focused on reading with kids, we might have them in our lap and we're always focusing on the book. Right. You actually need to make a decision, okay, I'm going to have that child look at me which is also really great for bonding as well. But I'm thinking that for most people when we read with kids, that's not instinctual. So I think that our listeners will really find that quite helpful. Great. Going back to kids getting retained, sometimes they're held back in kinder or grade one because they're, quote, not progressing. And the conventional wisdom is that an extra year will give the child the chance to mature. What does research say about holding kids back a grade because they're not keeping up? Most of the research on retention or kids being held back is it's not going to make a big difference. It doesn't really, quote, fix the problem. Um, and here's what that means from a brain scientist perspective, because I'm a neuropsychologist. And my expertise is how the brain works. If I want to teach you how to ride a bike and I give you 100 bike riding lessons, but every time I give you the lesson, and let's say I do it with a daily activity, it's a daily bike riding lesson, I'm trying to teach Susie how to ride her little bike, and, and it's going to be for 30 minutes every day, five days a week, we're going to do it for, you know, until we hit 100 sessions. But if every time I did it, I only say ride it, 
write it, write it, mm. write it. Okay, well, the directions are not very explicit, excuse me, and they don't give her all the information of what she needs to do. If I say, well, she didn't learn it yet, so I'm going to give her another year of that again, you're probably going to get the same results because the brain's based on experience. Mm. The experiences you give the brain build the wiring. If I give you the same experiences next year that I gave you last year, I'm probably going to get the same results. Because if what I did last year didn't work, it's probably not going to work next year too. Now, the fallacy in this thing that if we hold them back, they're going to mature is a fallacy of thinking that age actually changes the functional communication or the functional skills of the brain. That's not always a guarantee. That would be like saying every man age 50 is perfectly mature because by 50, you've matured. Now, that doesn't happen. It would be nice, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> so just chronology doesn't rewire the brain to better efficiency, better function. Right. So extra year, this concept of he hasn't matured yet, what mature usually means in an educational setting is the teachers don't know why, but he doesn't have the skills yet. Scientists like myself have really broken down what the skills are and how can you explicitly train these skills then we can say, okay, let's not hold them back. Let's give them an intervention mm. to change the skills, change them right away because the instruction that they've been getting in the classroom, it's kind of like saying if you're building a house, there's key hierarchy to how lower level parts of the house building affect the upper level of the house. So the m- most important piece is the foundation. If the foundation of the house is concrete, but it's not level or it's cracked or it's, you know, got a wave in it or something that's going to affect every floor of the house from that point forward because every part of the house builds on top of that Mm -hmm. the brain is very similar if these lower level systems are not being addressed by the instructional curriculum it's kind of like saying you're trying to build the brain house from the second story up you're hoping the foundation's level you're hoping the foundation was even poured and you're just going to keep doing your instructional method but then you're giving the instruction a level higher than what the brain actually needs It's not going down to the lower levels where the weaker skills are, so then you're actually not going to change the weaker skills quite as much. It doesn't mean you can't do what they call top-down learning. Like I can say, I'm going to teach you morphology about word meanings, and from that, I'm going to get to the phonological awareness. Because by exposing you to more words, you're hearing sounds too, but that's not going to be as efficient and as effective, and it hasn't been shown in research to be more effective. So then why would we do that? If, If the research shows that's not the most effective approach, even though you can actually get to it indirectly, how about a more direct approach that gives the best chance to building the skills mm. from the bottom? So retention rarely is the right answer. Early identification before the gap gets there and evidence-based and highly effective interventions mm. give us the best chance to build the skills. What is the prognosis for children with dyslexia with the help of early intervention? It's going to depend on the intervention they get. Right. If you give kids a phonics program only, and that's our early intervention. And it's always letters first, letters first. Well, okay, we're now building the house from the second story up. Right. Because you don't learn a language by letters, you learn a language by speech processing. So we have a higher risk that those kids might improve their literacy skills, they might learn some of the phonics rules, but they're probably not gonna be as efficient as a child who got this speech processing early intervention first before they got into the written letter literacy intervention second. And in our studies, when we compare kids like that who got a phonics program versus a a neurodevelopmental program, we find the kids who got the neurodevelopmental program have larger gains, more long-lasting gains, and many of them never actually fall behind enough to get identified. So you actually can intervene so well that kids who are high risk for being diagnosed with dyslexia, which means the reading problems, we're not changing the genetics. Mm. Some parents get really really upset when they see me post something online about, you know, what if we could prevent dyslexia? Like, right. that's just, you can't do that. I'm like, well, okay, 
dyslexia by definition is a word reading problem. So I'm not talking about the genetics. I'm talking about the reading problems, okay? Mm. So if we can early intervene and prevent them from having the reading problems, that's the number one best outcome. Mm. So studies show that when kids get these evidence-based, highly effective interventions first, then there could be typical readers on grade level, and many of them actually don't need special ed or IEPs or remedial instruction. Right. In fact, we did one study with older kids, 8 to 10-year-olds. These kids were already in remedial. They're already in special ed. They've already been diagnosed with dyslexia. And it, we gave a five-year study to see could we change their skills enough that they would actually be on grade level with reading and maybe even leave special ed. And in that study, again, it was not a measure of the effectiveness of a program. It was a measure of this dosage. They got one hour, two days, I'm sorry, they got two hours a week, five days a week. So basically 10 hours of instruction a week right. for eight weeks. So, so no more than 80 sessions. Right. The number one outcome from that study, Liz, was that 40% of the kids no longer stayed in special ed within one year of those eight weeks. Wow. In the U.S., we know that if you get in special ed and you get remedial and you get a specialized IEP, gosh, Liz, 95% of kids never leave special ed. Yeah. Yeah. That tells whatever they're doing really isn't addressing the cause of the problem. They're kind of putting plasters on the, the symptoms or they're putting a band-aid on the symptoms and it's not really addressing the causal factors. Yeah, quite heartbreaking, isn't it? Yes, yes. And there's a new push now among children and adults with dyslexia to say, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't have a disease. I don't need your treatment. And it's like, well, but you know what? What if we could make reading stronger for you? Why would we not do that? So mm. whether you like the diagnosis or not is irrelevant to me. I want you to have as strong as skills as possible, mm. as strong as reading skills, as strong as spelling skills. There's also a big myth going around that says dyslexic kids are better visual spatial learners. They're better out-of-the-box thinkers. More of them become CEOs. That's really just not true. There's no large-scale research studies that show that. Right. Um, and why would we want to even focus on that if we can actually know how to get the majority of kids reading on grade level before the age eight. Right. And other studies have shown we can systematically help get a large percent of kids on grade level before age eight so that maybe only about you know 3% of them are not reading on grade level, not 20% of them, mm. or even five, seven, or 10%. One of the research studies showed that we could actually get it down to about 2.6% of kids would be falling behind if we did this intervention in a whole classroom setting. Goodness. And so that's really a much better outcome than the 5 to 20% we have right now. Mm. I can tell that uh, the frustration of you having to deal with all these, the myths and the misconceptions. <laughs> it's coming through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's coming through. <laughs> I'm a dad of two kids. Right. Dyslexia runs in my family. Mm. When I was five years old, my seven-year-old brother had trouble learning how to read. Fortunately for us... My aunt was world famous for her work of dyslexia. So my brother got early intervention from my mom who trained with my aunt. Right. I then got prevention. So I got worked with at age five. Right. Fast forward to me being an adult, both of my kids had dyslexia. My kids both got early intervention. They've never struck. Right. And it, it breaks my heart to think that all kids aren't getting that opportunity. Yeah. Because we have such powerful interventions, we should be getting them out there to all the kids, training the teachers, training the systems and putting them in place. So my focus right now is electronic delivery. So I'm actually right. building apps that I'll get apps out to mom and dad. Because yeah. mom and dad always pick this up first. They're, they know before most of the teachers do. Agreed. Most parents know right away at ages two, three, and four, something's not developing quite the same about language or motor skills. And so if we get them some apps that give them some uh, very directed, explicit scientific practice, we have a better chance that we can even help mom and dad have a more powerful effect on their kids' literacy and language skill development. And that, to me, would be a huge boon for us because 
we're not going to change crime, drug abuse, or violence until we change better educational outcomes. Yeah. That's really the key element. Well, that is an amazing project. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been a really helpful discussion, and I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And we hope your parents are optimistic and understand that these issues of developmental difficulties and these neurodevelopmental disorders can be greatly improved with evidence-based, highly effective interventions. And we're getting better and better, and we hope we continue to improve with that success rates. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Just before we sign off, I want to add this other little snippet from Dr. Conway. And that's probably one myth I didn't mention that I wish I would have, which is this myth that children with dyslexia, your brain works differently. Right. Well, Liz, I'm a neuroscientist, neuropsychologist. There's no evidence that the brain's actually physically working differently. Mm. It's working less efficiently, but we can change that with the right practice, right experience. So the hope is really to get this knowledge out there and to get educators to embrace science and scientists who want to help them have more effective methods. I completely agree with Dr. Conway there. Give us the science along with the practical application so we can improve our kids' learning the very next time we step into the classroom. You can find out more about Dr. Conway's work and his online tutoring programs by going to themorriscentre.com or nowprograms.net or find him on Facebook at Now Programs or The Morris Centre. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please go to iTunes to leave a rating and review. It really does help others find the podcast. You can find the transcript of this episode, a helpful poster of signs to look for, plus links to Dr. Conway at lizesearlylearningspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and look for episode 23. This podcast is part of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts by educators podcasts for educators. To check out more in education, including other early childhood-focused podcasts, go to edupodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for joining me to learn more about early childhood research, and I wish you happy teaching and learning. Thanks for listening to the Early Childhood Research Podcast at www.lizesearlylearningspot.com.